In recent weeks, we've been listening to Jesus' messages as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And we continue today with uh, some messages of Jesus from Luke chapter 12. So please open your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 12. I'll be reading from verse 35. Luke 12. Verse 35, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third watch of the night and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat, and he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that house will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a lighter beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until that is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, 
You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, his first letter, and reading from chapter 5, verse 1. One Thessalonians five, verse one. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the light, sorry, we are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, Sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is God's word for us. Welcome to everyone here today. Um, uh, My name is Steve, one of the pastors of the church, uh, along with Ben, who is currently away uh, in Canberra at the moment, I believe. So if you can pray for his safe travels back. Uh, he's uh, a little bit unsure as to what's going to be happening with the borders and so forth, so they have to make decisions quite quickly. And when you're in a situation like that, it can actually be quite stressful. So um, uh, play, pray for Ben um, as, he, uh, as, the, as their family's away and, and trying to work out what to do in the, in the next few days. Um, a couple of quick announcements before we get into today's passage. Firstly, just to reiterate about the Christmas at home groups, uh, three quick points to reiterate. Firstly, uh, if you've been assigned to one of the church at home groups, uh, please stick with that. That's the, um, uh, the group that you've been assigned with. We understand if you've got to make a change of plans, so be in contact with your home group members about that. Two, if you don't have a place to go, uh, there is that Facebook, uh, that, that list on, fa- on the Facebook page and uh, if you ask, someone can definitely forward that along to you, uh, so you can choose a home to head to as well. Please be in contact with that home host so that they know who to expect, how many people are coming. Uh, and in regards to the food uh, for that day, 
Um, it's up to the home host, so please be in contact with them too. Uh, the third thing is that because it is a pre-recorded service and it will go live from 9am, um, you can choose at any time. It's flexible for each home when they choose to listen, uh, when they choose to view that, um, uh, that service. Uh, so please again be in contact with your home group as well on that. Don't forget after today's service here, there's a Q&A. Uh, so please stick around. Feel free to pop your message, your questions into the live chat. Uh, and I'll answer them hopefully well and from the Bible afterwards, afterwards as well. Let me pray. Let me ask God to bless our time here today. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we have one simple prayer today. Help us by your spirit to be doers of your word and not just hearers. Your son Jesus will say some hard things today. So help us to listen and obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past week, audio leaked from the set of the Mission Impossible 7 set. Uh, lead star actor Tom Cruise was heard on audio recordings screaming at crew members for violating COVID-19 protocols. Apparently, two members were standing a little bit too close looking at the video monitor. Now, the tirade was full on. Thank you. The tirade was full on. Crews screamed at the crew members, not just because they were breaking the rules, but because their actions could have massive consequences. The movie industry had been shut down because of COVID-19, but here was Crews working his butt off to make sure that it was kept alive, and part of that was keeping these strict COVID-19 policies. So Crews screamed at these guys uh, that they were setting everything back that their actions would have massive consequences for everyone else. Now, the tirade obviously picked up a bit of criticism. It did have an abusive tone to it. Listening to it, I do think it played into those power dynamics that we all hate. You know, a big, powerful person, the celebrity, yelling at lower-level employees and threatening them. That just isn't right. But it was surprising to read online how many people were praising Tom Cruise for his passion, for his noble goals. He really cared about many people in the industry who were being affected by the shutdowns, people who had lost their jobs, who had lost their homes, who were struggling to put food on the table for their children. Restarting the movie industry and keeping everyone safe so that people could keep their homes and their jobs and place food on the table for their kids, that was Tom Cruise's number one goal. See, the stakes were so high the harshness was justified, apparently. Now, whether or not you heard the audio, what do you think about that? What do you think about that principle? Do you think that the stakes being so high justify screaming passion, no matter how uncomfortable it was? See, over the past few weeks, Jesus has said some pretty uncomfortable things. He confronted the Pharisees and lawyers, calling them murderers and hypocrites, he warned his disciples of the dangers of that oh-so-awkward-to-talk-about place called hell. Then he touched upon the offensive-to-Asian ears subject of money. And when he wasn't hitting on those touchy subjects, he's been constantly challenging his disciples to deny themselves and to follow him. Jesus hasn't held back. Being his disciple is hard work, and even in today's passage, he will continue to say hard things about the cost of following him. And he will say it because the stakes are so high. 
So far in the previous chapters, Jesus has jam-packed instructions on being his disciple. Just prior to this, remember you'll remember from Ben's sermon last week that he instructed his disciples to trust God by not worrying. Now Jesus turns to his disciples and he tells them how they are to live before God. How does trust express itself? The answer, by living in the light of the end time. By responding to the reality that Jesus will one day return to judge with authority. So in verses 35 to 36, Jesus opens with two two quick pictures and one longer picture of what this sort of readiness and response looks like. The first two quick pictures you see there in verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Now, stay dressed for action is literally gird up your loins, which is a rather funny phrase to our ears, but it pictures a man pulling up his long garments and tying them around his legs so that he could be ready to run and to fight. Stay dressed for action. Make sure that you are ready. The second quick picture that follows quickly afterwards is to keep your lamp burning. Here is the picture of constant alertness. The ability, readiness even, to move about in the dark. Now both of these images together give us a sense of being watchful, ready at any moment. The third picture is drawn out in verses 36 to 39. Jesus pictures a man, a master of a house full of servants who serve him. uh, And this master is called away to a wedding feast. Now, last weekend, I had the privilege of attending the wedding feast of Cam and Marilyn. Uh, It was a 12 p.m. wedding on the Saturday. Uh, It was a very short ceremony. A lunch was provided shortly afterwards, and it went to around 3.30 p.m., which is roughly when my kids had enough and tapped out. We were there for a total of around four hours, four and a bit hours. But in the first century, a wedding could go for a number of days, even up to a week long. You factor in some travel time there and back, and this master, who has been called away to a wedding feast, may have been gone for quite a substantial period of time. Jesus wants his disciples to be like his men, these master's men, waiting for their master's return at any moment. You look in verse 38, that could be at any time, even at night. The second or third watch goes deep into the night. Jesus tells his disciples to be like these servants, faithfully waiting. Now, what are they waiting for? What is he calling disciples to be ready for, to be prepared for, to keep being watchful for? Well, he tells them in verse 40. Have a look with me at verse 40. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. See here, Jesus is saying that he is the master. His coming refers to his second coming, uh, his return to wrap up all of history and to judge the living and the dead. Jesus wants his disciples to be faithfully waiting for his return, dressed and ready for action, their lamps burning, being watchful and being like faithful servants, faithfully waiting for his return. To highlight this further, he gives another picture in verse 39. Picture the master of a house being accidentally sent a text message from a robber that they were going to hit the master's house that night at 9.30 p.m. Now, if you got that text message, what would you do? Would you decide to go ahead with your evening booking, going out for an all-nighter? No, you'd get yourself ready. 
You'd lock the doors, you'd shut the windows, you'd put your valuables away, security system installed, and have the police on speed dial in case they actually do turn up. Now, that all sounds a bit scary, but the point that Jesus is making in the illustration, again, is being ready. Knowing that something's going to happen forces you to be ready for it. But notice what our master Jesus does when he finds his faithful servants waiting for him in verse 37. Have a look at verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. See, when the master returns to find faithful servants waiting for him, he gets himself dressed and he serves his servants. Charles Spurgeon says of this verse that this is one of the most remarkable utterances of our Lord while he was here upon earth. Think about it. Jesus is the servant king. He, we know that from other parts of the Gospels. To be the servant king means that Jesus served us, and he did it by washing the feet of his disciples, and he expressed it in the biggest way, serving us by dying on the cross for our sins. But listen again to what he says in verse 37 here in Luke's Gospel. There will come a time in the future when the king will return. The king will return to judge the living and the dead. And when the king has finished judgment, and when he ushers in the new age and the new creation, he will stoop down to once again serve his people. Can you imagine being seated at his table for dinner, for a meal? And as you sit down, he picks up the first platter of food and serves you. He fills up your plate. Can you imagine how upside down that moment will be? Shouldn't we be serving him? Well, here's what Jesus says. He will serve us. This utterly astonishing fact seems to fly over the head of Peter. He just doesn't, he misses it totally. So in verse 41, he, just, he wants clarification on something else. He, he asks if the parable about the servants is for the 12 disciples or for every disciple. Now, it is a little bit tricky because it looks like what's going on here in these, in these verses is that verses 35 to 40 are addressed to every disciple of Jesus. But the language, is, and the language is general enough to apply to them all. But then in verses 41 to 45, uh, 48, he appears to focus on the leaders of God's people. Uh, you can see that there in verse 42. Right? Jesus asks, who is the faithful and wise manager? Who has been put in charge over the household? Who gives the other servants their food at the proper time? Now, the use of the word manager there in verse 42 probably here refers to church leaders. Uh, elders and teachers and pastors and those in leadership over others. Notice that their job is to provide food for the other servants. Church leaders are tasked with the responsibility of caring for God's flock by feeding them, by giving them and teaching them the word of God. 
The faithful church leader is blessed by Jesus when he returns, finding them doing what they are supposed to be doing. And again, in verse 44, the generosity of Jesus is revealed. Jesus will set faithful leaders over all his possessions, further responsibility and oversight over all his his possessions. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that entails, but it hints that even in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be work to do. The fact that Jesus is so generous, so servant-hearted, don't gloss over this too quickly. See, one of the constant temptations in the Christian life is the temptation that sin offers something more desirable, more pleasurable, more good, and it works because we also believe the lie that God is holding back something good from us. That was the lie, that was the temptation that the serpent slipped to Eve. God is holding back something good from you. God isn't that nice. He's stingy. You fight this lie, you fight that temptation with the biblical truth that God is not only incredibly good, but is also generous to us, lavishly generous. There's no way we can deny this as we read through the Bible. The goodness of God toward his people is dripping on every page. Now in verses 45 to 48, Jesus turns his attention to unfaithful servants and in context, unfaithful leaders of the church. I say this again because in verse 44, see how they abuse their fellow servants who they are supposed to care for. Have a look at verse 45. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Now, the unfaithful leader here does what the rich fool desired in last week's parable. He eats and he drinks and is merry. Life for him is good because his master is absent. But then the master appears and judgment is swift and severe. To be cut up in pieces is a severe mortal blow. I don't think it's literal, but it is figurative of a severe and just judgment. It's a picture of rejection from God. Because this is serious business, a serious warning. Jesus will not be mocked. To be thrown with the unfaithful at the end in verse 46 shows, I think, again, that these wicked servants were actually unbelievers to begin with. Now, I think there's a, a touch of relief here in these passages for us as we read them, because he's not speaking about faithful disciples, faithful believers. He is warning against unbelievers, wolves in sheep's clothing, who take advantage of God's flock and abuse them. They might look like servants, but they are, in fact, abusive unbelievers. I don't know if you're surprised to know, but this happens way too often in churches. One of my ministry friends experienced this exact same thing while he was in the UK. He went over there, he migrated over there for a year in a traineeship because he wanted to join this church plant under this particular guy who was one of the leaders of the field. Everyone came to him. He wrote the book on how to plant churches. Everyone wanted to talk to him about his ministry philosophy and see how wonderful his church was. But it was only six months in when he realized 
that this leader was an incredibly abusive person, spiritually abusive, emotionally abusive. Anyone who, every decision went through him, small or big, anyone who disagreed with his decisions or who had the audacity to make their own decisions, they were labeled a law unto themselves. They were defined as enemies to him and his ministry. And that identity stains you for the rest of your time with the church. That leader is no longer the pastor of that church and a report into his abuse has been made public. But he is one, of, one example of a few that I have read about over the years. See, all of this is to illustrate that unfaithful servants, bullying leaders and abusive pastors are around. And Jesus will punish them. His flock will be defended. He will avenge those who have been hurt. And he will not be mocked. Now, while this is a warning for us to be careful of those wolves in sheep's clothing, it's a warning to someone like me as well, your pastor. It's a warning to someone like Ben, also your pastor. I know some who, of my friends who went into ministry and then had to step out because of harsh or demanding ways. They didn't quite get to the point of abuse, but it was eye-opening to remember that even the best of us can start to stray. So please pray for your leaders, pray for your elders, and pray for your pastors that we would be faithful to Jesus, humbly serving him, loving the flock and caring for his sheep. In verses 47 to 48, Jesus turns his attention back to more general servants, general disciples. Uh, He says that the more knowledge someone has, the more they will be held to account. Have a look at verse 47. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. See how in these verses we're not talking about being sliced up severely, but being disciplined severely or lightly. So I think that language again helps us see that now Jesus is talking generally about all disciples of Christ. Jesus is just and fair. The more that you know, the more you are responsible for. The more you have been given responsibility, the more Jesus will demand from you. It is just and fair. This is an important word for all of us to consider. And we're going to return to it again at the end in the so what during the applications because Jesus has a few more things to say to add to that at the end. For now, after warning the disciples about the need to prepare for his return, Jesus describes in verses uh, 49 onwards his present ministry in three short paragraphs. Three warnings engaging, about engaging with his ministry. The first warning is that following Jesus may mean division within your family. He opens up in verses 49 to 50 talking about his impending suffering. He speaks of himself coming to cast down fire, which is often an image of judgment used in the Gospel of Luke. We know that Jesus, he desires for this judgment to already be kindled in verse 49, which is another way of saying that Jesus is ready to fulfill his duty. He's ready to begin judgment, but he knows that there are other things that must happen before that can start. 
the chief thing being his baptism that he says there in verse 50, baptism into suffering. Uh, the point he's making is that he's going to face a period where he is immersed, he is baptized, as you, if you, as you will, into suffering. He will be flooded with God's judgment for sin. He's talking about here at the cross where he will be substituted in our place to die to save. That thought, this path, brings him great distress. This is not going to be easy. He wants to save, but he knows salvation goes through that path of the cross. The work of Jesus is filled with pain for him. And then he says that his followers are not immune from that pain either. His words in verses 51 to 53 are blunt. Verse 51, do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three, divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus has come to bring peace between man and God. That is his gospel message, but his gospel message is not universally received. So it will cause division, even to the very heart of our families. Jesus has come to set father against son, mother against daughter, and so on, because some will believe and some will reject this. And this division between the two will occur even within your families. By the grace of God, you may, be, you may have been raised in a Christian family. Praise God for that. But these words here, these really hard words from Jesus, I know that they are hard because I have lived them. I became a Christian while at university, uh, attending YF here at this church. After about two months of being a Christian, I, I realized I needed to tell my parents about my new faith. I remember being convicted of that and then riding home on the train to tell my parents. Uh, I was just in the city, but back on the train ride back home. And I remember sitting on the train, physically shaking in my stomach because of the fear. And my fears were realized. See, at first my parents were quiet about it. They were disappointed. But a couple of weeks later, it all came out. One Sunday morning as I was preparing to go to church, they came out and on me like a ton of bricks. There was yelling, there was screaming, there were tears, and I was barred from going to church and told that if I continued on this line, I would be disowned. And this was the Sunday just before my exams. Long story short, over time, things got better by the grace of God. But these words of Jesus hit me right in the heart. I've spoken to many in our church and it's, I've heard similar stories, especially from those with Muslim or Hindu backgrounds. Following Jesus can mean deep division and broken relationships with your family, your mum whom you love, your father who you look up to and respect. I know the pain can work the other way too, faithful parents who, whose children walk away from the faith. The pain that you feel as they refuse to engage, perhaps even being angry at your faith. Why does it have to be this way? 
Why couldn't following Jesus be a little bit more easier on your family? And the simple answer is because Jesus demands total allegiance. His is the first allegiance. Nothing comes before him. But do remember, in the division and in the pain, Jesus is kind and good. Jesus says later in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verse 29, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. It was around that time when my parents came down on me, I remember receiving so much love and support from the people here in church. I remember Arutan and Amanda giving me a hug. I can't see you behind the light there, Arutan, but I remember that. I remember Uncle Paul and Auntie Daisy, two of the elders in our church, uh, praying for me. I remember the many emails and the text messages from wifers who were praying for me and supporting me and sending me the summaries of Bible studies that I had missed out on. And I remembered through all of that, that Jesus demands ultimate allegiance and his kindness and goodness is shown through his people. You see, the more you see and experience the ministry of Jesus, the more you realize how true it is. In verses 54 to 56, he turns his attention to the crowd and he says to them, get me right, understand me correctly to interpret what they see in Jesus just as good as they are interpreting the weather forecast. Reading the weather in Israel was a relatively straightforward thing. If a cloud rose in the west, you know that rain was coming. It's even simpler for us. You pull out your phone, you click on the Bureau of Meteorology's website and the radar screens, and you can quickly tell if one of the classic Brisbane storms is about to approach and how bad it might be. Jesus says that if you can read the weather this easily, then you should be able to read the significance of my ministry as well. Only a foolish hypocrite doesn't respond to everything Jesus has shown them already. Jesus has already provided so much evidence of God's work in his life, but the crowd have not responded well. The lack of response was leaving them in jeopardy. Have you done the same? Have you heard and seen all that what Jesus has done and said but failed to respond? In the final part of our passage, Jesus gives one more warning, verses 57 to 59. The time for personal reflection has come. Using the illustration of a court case, Jesus urges his listeners, do business with God. Verse 57, why and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer. And the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. I think here the illustration is simple enough. If you're in trouble with someone and they're dragging you to court, then you make every effort you can to settle with that person before the judge makes their call. Failing to do so means that you will get hauled before the judge, thrown into prison until every cent of your debt is paid off. Jesus is telling everyone, you have an enormous debt with God. 
This debt is added to every single time that you sin against God. Every sin deposits into the debt, making it larger and larger and increasingly difficult to repay. And in fact, it is impossible to repay. But you are given time now. Do business with God. Seek him out to try and settle this account before the day of judgment because then it will be too late. Jesus is saying some really strong things in our passage today. He said unfaithful servants will be severely punished. He said that he has come to bring division even among family members. He sternly calls his audience hypocrites if they don't act on what they have already seen about Jesus. And here at the end, he warns firmly, do business with God. Get right with him or else. His words may sound a little bit harsh. His tone may sound a little bit harsh but the stakes are so high. Jesus has warned that you should settle your account with God before the day of judgment. And the Bible tells us that God is both the one we owe and the judge. We owe our debt to him and he is our judge. But the good news of the gospel that Christians believe is that this account has been settled. God himself has paid the debt that we owe him. By sending his son Jesus to take the penalty for our failures, to be substituted in our place for our sins, God has graciously and kindly and mercifully and completely paid what you owed. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus' death really has done this. He says this in Colossians chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, on the cross, Jesus died. His death forgives all of our sins. Our debt is cancelled. How would you respond to that? How should you respond to that? A few years ago, there was a lottery advertisement. I'm not uh, um, supporting the lottery. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just, this is just about the advertisement. There was a lottery advertisement. A young woman, a uh, young mother, was having a small housewarming party for the house that she had just purchased. And her parents had come along with a large framed picture of some sort, a housewarming gift. The woman unwraps the present and inside is this framed picture of her bank mortgage stamped, paid off. The parents had obviously won the lottery and paid off her daughter's mortgage. And how did her daughter respond? With joy, with laughter, with hugs, with tears. Friends, have you experienced that joy of knowing that your debt is completely cancelled? That God has paid it off in full? If you haven't, then it's as simple as praying to God and asking him to forgive you. You you don't have to do anything to try and earn it. You can't do anything to try and earn that debt cancellation of debt. The good news of the Christian message is that Jesus has come to pay off what we couldn't. My friends, don't delay in doing this. There is an urgency 
for us to respond sooner rather than later. Jesus has warned in our passage today that at some point the master will return. Jesus will return one day, and if not before that, you don't know when you will take your last breath before death. You don't know when you will die, and you don't know when Jesus will return. So respond to him now. You see, the mercy of God is limitless. There's nothing that God cannot forgive. But the mercy of God is not eternal. There is a time limit. And it will run out one day. When Jesus returns, there will be no second chance. And that means that the gospel also contains a bit of bad news. Here in our passage, the bad news is this. Those who hear and do not respond are in more trouble than those who have never heard. The more that you have been told, the more that you have been given, much more will be demanded from you. This is especially relevant for anyone here in church and everyone listening on the live stream who grew up in church or considered yourself to be a Christian for a long time. Can I humbly ask you, Are you really a disciple of Jesus? Do the words of Jesus and his lordship impact your life beyond Sunday? Do you have an affection for Jesus and his church? If you have said no or you're not sure, then now is the time to really wrestle with this. Now is the time to do business with God. You know, maybe some of us have been sitting under the preaching and teaching of this church for years. You know the gospel, but it has had no impact on your life. Maybe you've come to church your whole life, but for the rest of the week, you're a practical atheist because you live for yourself. Listen again very carefully to the words of Jesus. Everyone to whom much was given, everyone who's heard the gospel taught again and again, of him much will be required. The more you know, the more you must respond. Jesus is passionately telling the crowd to interpret the present time. Look at everything that Jesus has done and work out the obvious response that it demands. Everything that you've heard in this series, everything you've learned over the years, it should be plain that Jesus really is who he says he is. So turn to him, throw yourself on him by seeking forgiveness for living for yourself. And ask him to help him to live with him as your Lord. His desires to now rule your life. Respond today. Do it now before the return of Jesus. Before it's too late. Now the passage we have before us also warns the believer. This is not just a passage for the unbeliever to be uh, responding today. But it's also a warning to the believer as well. Those who do say that they trust in Jesus and are following him. The passage warns us as well to keep being faithful. See, over the past few months, as we've gone through this discipleship series, there's been a whole host of applications, lots of challenges for us to keep pursuing. Uh, Even Ben last week, he said people have been telling him, be more practical, be more specific. So he got really specific and practical. The application today, the emphasis today in this passage is really simple. Keep doing that. Keep persevering in listening to Jesus 
faithfully denying ourselves and living for him. Decisions, choices and actions which please him. That's a relatively simple command, but it is very hard to carry out. It will be one of the hardest things that you may do. Which is why we need each other. Especially we need the older generations in our churches and in our church to connect with our younger generations and to keep encouraging them. We have a lot of young faces in our church. And this is my appeal to the older generation. Connect with them. Younger generation, please connect with those who are older so that you can see what being a Christian looks like at the age of 40, at 50, at 60, at 70 and beyond. You need to connect with someone who probably has been a Christian a lot longer than you've been alive so that you can find courage for when you go through those down and hard periods. You can look at someone who's gone before you and see that it can be done. This is hard work. And it will also come at the cost for some of us of our families. Many Christians throughout the generations have paid this price. So we must be prepared for it. But it's ultimately a work that richly pays off. Remember, God is not stingy. It verges on blasphemy to believe that God is ungenerous. He who did not spare his own son how much more will he give to those who are faithful to him? Jesus tells us the answer today. He will give everything. You must be ready for Jesus' coming. Blessing comes from being faithful and following him, even at the cost of family. Heed the warnings, hold on to the encouragements, and remember, the more that you know, more will be required of you. The more that is given to you, the more will be demanded of you. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much again for this word. And again, it is a hard word, but it is a word which is rich with your generosity, rich with your grace. Help us to be hearers and, not, and doers of your word. Help us, Father, to do so, to be obedient to your Son to live in holiness and godliness for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me begin with the first one on, uh, in particular to last week's sermon. So with regards to last week's sermon, is saving up for the future or investing wrong? What is a godly way to look at our finances while also being financially responsible? And I think that's a, a good thing that you've hit on in that, last, in that second part of the question about being financially responsible. So we do need to, to take care of it. I think probably the main principle I would give is to remember that you are stewarding the money. It's not yours. If you begin with a mindset that the money that you have in your bank, the money that you received, uh, whether it's gifted from your parents or uh, from your work or from the government or whoever, uh, remember that once it's landed in your lap, it is ultimately God's for you to steward, to take care of. You're just looking after it on his behalf. So you want to make sure that, it, I think that should be a guiding principle in the way that we think through uh, how we use it, what we, what we spend on, uh, what we intend to be generous with um, and, uh, and give away. Um, I think if, I want to give a couple of resources uh, to further add to that, but I think that's the main principle, that you are a steward. 
Uh, two books I would recommend. One, there's a very small book by Randy Alcorn called The Treasure Principle, where he gives, I think, a little bit more of that mindset of how to think biblically uh, about the money that you have, uh, The Treasure Principle. And second one is a biography or a collection of biographies. Uh, normally, when we think of biographies, we think of the biographies of the big kind of missionaries, evangelists, pastors, etc., uh, the big guys and, and women. Uh, and this one that I want to suggest called Gospel Patrons. I can't remember the name of the author, but it's a blue book. Uh, Gospel Patrons is about those who are in the background financially supporting uh, guys like uh, Hudson Taylor, Charles Spurgeon, um, so these uh, ministers of the gospel. Um, so I think that's a wonderful uh, biography to encourage us that our, our resources, our money, the, the money that we've been given, that we want to steward well, uh, can, should and uh, can be used for gospel and kingdom purposes. So I would say, main principle, uh, remember that you're stewarding the money that, is, that belongs to God. Secondly, uh, a couple of resources, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn and Gospel Patrons. I, I recommend that. Uh, how do we identify wolves and sheep's clothing who might be present in our church? How do we protect God's flock at SLE once these wolves have been identified? I say, firstly, how do you identify wolves and sheep's clothing? I would say keep reading through the New Testament. Every letter in the New Testament deals with false teaching in some shape or form. It's interesting how Paul and all the, letters, all the writers of the New Testament in every single letter, aside from Philemon, I think, uh, deal with this issue of false teaching. Now, if you read through the New Testament and you get that under your belt and become familiar with it, they give you the markers of what wolves in sheep's clothing can look like. Um, so I would say read through the New Testament, you'll see those markers there. What do you do? Uh, how do we protect the God's flock against Esselie once these wolves have been identified? I think part of the answer is, okay, if you see, well, if you think there are wolves among us, to let your leaders, your elders and pastors know, and we'll, uh, we'll have a look into that. Uh, if you're thinking more wolves out there, like false teachers with their books and so forth, uh, I think keep a, keep a track of what people are reading or what uh, resources they're sharing or things they're posting up on Facebook, etc. Um, so you can have an idea of, of what's going on and uh, gently engage with it. Ask them why people have, uh, why people have posted these things up uh, and so forth. So you want to partially care for people. Some people post these things up because they sound real and true, uh, because they resonate. Uh, they, they may not know uh, the source. So just be careful in terms of enga engaging with it. If you're unsure as well, feel free to uh, speak to your leaders, your elders and your pastors uh, for further advice on that too. Um, we are, we want to be really careful about who we appoint to leadership in our church to make sure that those who are appointed to leaders are, are relatively sound in their doctrine, uh, can teach, but also love uh, the church and love Jesus. So we want to keep making sure that it's not... Or it's not bulletproof, but uh, keep speaking to the elders and leaders if there are any particular concerns. Uh, this is a good question. Um, how did things play out when uh, my family barred me from going to church? Do you think that was the ultimate play? Optimal play, not ultimate play. Um, so what happened? I'm glad you asked that question. I wasn't exactly sure whether or not to include more of the story um, in it because it may have dragged things out a bit. But basically what happened was uh, in terms of the timeline, um, it crashed on a Sunday morning just before church. I had like a three-week block of exams, so I figured uh, I was, it was really emotional, very tense. Uh, I, over that time, I said, just keep your head down. You've got to study, get through this period. 
and then after exams, re revisit this. When exams finished, again, I prayed and I asked for support um, via email and text from friends. Uh, I prayed and I approached my dad again. I, I calmly sat down with him and I said, can we talk about uh, what happened a few weeks ago? Because I am a Christian. Uh, I don't want to give that up, but I want to honor you and I want to work out if we can uh, find a, a compromise. Uh, and so, look, that was a very awkward and uncomfortable conversation, but we got through it by the grace of God. Remember, God's always good to his people, and God's always good to us. He will get you through these things. We got through that conversation. We reached a compromise. So I was able to go to church and, and youth group, but he didn't want me too involved, and he wanted to make sure that my studies weren't impacted and affected. So hearing that out actually helped. Uh, helping, uh, recognizing his, his primary concern really helped. And so I did my best to honor that. I did my best to uh, uh, enjoy church and fellowship, but to make sure that I wasn't constantly hanging out with YFers, that I wasn't impacting my studies, uh, that I was showing responsibility to my parents with this newfound faith. What happened afterwards uh, took months and months and months. My brother had become a Christian about 18 months after I'd become a Christian. Um, no, yeah, my brother became a Christian shortly afterwards, after all of this kind of uh, happened and it began to kind of um, settle down. Uh, and then my parents, so my parents knew that, they were again disappointed. But what they noticed was that my relationship with my brother began to grow and to flourish. Uh, instead of just being, you know, typical Asian boys who hated on each other, now as Christian brothers, we loved each other and, and we, we, we just grew in our relationship together. Uh, I had it said to us that whenever we got together, it was like a house was on fire, right? We just really got along. My parents noticed this, in particular my mum. And so she saw that um, the Christian, at the, going to church being Christians wasn't a bad thing. It was actually improving our relationship between my brother and I. So that was good. By Providence, there was an incident with a family friend uh, who was roughly the same age as my brother and I. He went off the rails. And so my parents looked, saw that incident and looked at us and went, well, our boys are Christians and go to church, but at least he's not like that. So it seemed that in God's providence that all, all of this collided together um, to help my parents you know, embrace it a bit more. Not necessarily embrace the faith, they're still Buddhists, but at least uh, recognize that it was a good thing. Was that the optimal play? I think it's how it played out for us. And look, if you are in that situation, I would love to sit down with you and walk you through it and hear you out. It is really difficult uh, and it needs a lot of support. And so if you know someone in that situation, keep dropping them encouragements and messages of support as well, uh, because that's truly what um, helped me get through it. Um, and I think it, it, it's really beneficial for those going through it as well. Uh, how did you continue to navigate relationships with the antagonistic non-Christian family while being faithful to Lord Jesus? And again, I think that's part of what was showing them that I honoured them and respected their, uh, the compromise that we made. I, didn't, I did my best uh, to not abuse that. I was very clear about if I needed to go further or if I was going on a retreat and so forth. I was clear in communicating that. Uh, and then the, it was about growing my relationship with my brother and that's how that happened for us. Um, I think if you're, again, in that situation, I'd love to connect with you and chat with you and to encourage you and support you through that as well. Uh, how do we make sure that we are prepared for Jesus' sudden coming? We make sure that we're prepared by being faithful, reading our Bibles, listening to God's Word, uh, 
committing to fellowship and church uh, and doing these things together regularly and encouraging each other to keep persevering in it. It's a really simple task of just simply being faithful to what we hear and responding to that. Uh, I don't think it's rocket science. It's not overly complicated, and praise God for that. It is hard, though, which is why I said we need each other, and I think that's what we do to be prepared for Jesus' sudden coming. The people who are given much is... Uh, the people who are given much is the people referring to non-Christians who have understood the gospel and God's word. I think in context here in the gospel of Luke, it's primarily about those constantly hearing the gospel. So that does apply to anyone here in church, and it does apply to non-Christians who have heard the gospel. The more you have heard, I think the basic principle that Jesus says at the end there is the more you have heard, the more you are responsible for. Uh, and so uh, when, we, when we preach the gospel... It comes with a double edge. If they respond, praise God. If they don't, then we recognize that we're placing them under a stricter judgment. That is ultimately on them, uh, and so we've got to keep trusting that God will use our gospel preaching uh, and evangelism to reach others. How, uh, roughly the same question. Same question. Okay, so yeah, there's another question about uh, identifying wolves in sheep's clothing. I just uh, mentioned that earlier. Uh, keep reading through the New Testament. Uh, the identity markers are there in almost every letter of the New Testament, uh, and that's how you, we identify and distinguish them as well. So it looks like roughly at the moment mo most of those questions are answered. I'll just double check here. Oh, okay, that's it. Uh, all right, so thank you again so much for all your questions. Uh, if you haven't uh, fleshed out anything or if you'd like to follow up um, uh, something in particular, uh, feel free to drop me a message. We'll catch up for coffee uh, and um, uh, chat further on that too. Thank you again for um, uh, the questions. Thank you again for coming along to the service. And we'll see you on Friday online for the Church at Home groups and the Christmas celebration. I'm looking forward to unpacking uh, Luke 13 and the smallness of the kingdom of God and its beginnings and how it kept growing bigger and bigger, and that's how God's kingdom is. So I'm looking forward to that, and I'll see you on Friday for that together.